All right, well, good morning, contact family. I'm invisible today. I'm in the back. We're going to start off this morning. We're going to be watching a video, so I'm going to get that all going, make sure people online can hopefully see it. For those of you that are online, there's a link in the description that will hopefully help you out. So this is going to be our review for today, and it's not just going to review us. It's also going to give us a little bit of content that we haven't had yet. I hope it's enjoyable, and I hope it all works. Here we go. The Book of Daniel. The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refuse to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted. They're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death, and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. 
This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a god, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts and like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast identified as a really evil empire, and it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is the image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. 
Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John the visionary who wrote the Revelation could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings in their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. Did you learn something? I learned something. There's all kinds of stuff in there. Is that Those videos are just so thick, right? You know, it's hard to deal with an entire book of the Bible that's 12 chapters long in 8 minutes and 50 seconds. But they do a good job, and they give us a good overview. So what's going to happen is we're going to talk today about this chapter 7 through 12 block a little bit. And then next week, we're going to finish our series on the book of Daniel by looking back at chapter 7 in specific. Because there's some really important things there that I want to hit, but I don't want to take the time the same way through the rest of the chapters. They might be better in a class. You kind of saw how thick some of that stuff was in those back chapters. And then it deals with a lot of prophecy. So we want to talk about a few of those things. These are filled with apocalyptic visions of Daniel in chapter 7 through 12. Apocalypse means revelation. So when you see revelation, the title of revelation in Greek is apocalypto, because apocalypto means revelation. So it's something that's revealed, okay? So that's, that's all that word means. It's not this huge end of the world word. It just means something that is revealed. So anytime something is revealed, you could call that an apocalypse. All right, if you remember back in December, we did, maybe it was, it actually might have been the last Sunday of November, we did a lesson on hope. And we talked a little bit about Apocalypse when we were in the book of Mark, because there's some stuff we needed to talk about. And so we're going to review those things really quick. Apocalypse is primarily for people of that time, okay? If a prophecy is issued that doesn't come true for a thousand years, was that really helpful when it was dropped? Can you tell if that person's right? I mean, that's like, have any of you guys been watching your Facebook feed? And it, they keep saying how the Simpsons keep getting everything right about the future. Like, are they really prophets? Because they also got a lot of things wrong, right? There's just some things where they look forward and say, man, this could, this will be funny. And then life is ridiculous sometimes. And it ends up happening. But that's not what's going on. These, these things are, are more attached to something else going on. It's looking at, um, but we'll talk about that in a second. But the big thing is, 
the main purpose of these things are for the people at that time. Think about a countdown timer, okay? You're counting down 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All right, you put yourself in the place of some of these people that are hurting. They are feeling oppressed. We're going to talk a little bit more about one of the situations in a minute. They are got things going on that are terrible for them, and they are at the end of their rope. They're saying, I am ready to give up. I don't know if I can make it any longer. The purpose of apocalyptic writing is to walk you through the countdown timer so you find yourself at about the number two. And you say, look, you've already seen all of these things happen. You're here. We're almost to the end. Hold on. Hold on. It's not just about predicting the future. It's really the truest sense of what apocalyptic writing is for. It is to help people hold on when they don't think they can do it anymore. Hold on. Okay. So, speaks to both the present and the day of the Lord. Now, you might remember we did this. We had this picture of this mountain range, right? And you look at the mountain range and you see all the different peaks. And each of these different peaks is like a different time when an empire falls or when something big and destructive happens, right? And then there's the biggest one at the end. And the biggest one, that's the day of the Lord, when all of this is going to be culminated and God is going to finally fully bring his justice and his rule into the world with the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so when we look at it like this, we can see the nuances of it. But at the same time, if we look at it straight on, what do you see? You just see the one big one. You can't tell all the little peaks the same way when it's that way. And that's what's going on with this apocalyptic writing, is that there's, there's stuff that touches on what's happening right then, but that same language resonates with what God is going to do finally in the future, because it has the same things, right? That's what, when we see the statue that's falling, each, each part of the statue has to fall. So like the big day of the Lord is like the whole statue being crumbled at once, but it didn't, right? And we're going to see that in a second because we're going to talk through some history. We're going to do a little history lesson today. Some of you guys are going to be excited about that. Some of you guys are already trying not to fall asleep. So you can do it. All right, this was one of the verses that we had in our past lesson on hope. And it is from Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Jesus, uh, not even, not even Jesus, knows when that grand finale is going to be. Jesus says, only the Father knows when the end is going to be. And so I point that out yet again. Here's the thing. If you hear someone predicting a date for the end of the world, walk away. All right? If you see someone that is laying out their Bible and trying to attach dates and figures and stuff with what's going on in current history, walk away and let them do that. And then you go say, Jesus doesn't know. Why do you, Mr. Minister down the street, know when the end of the world is going to be? What's made you so special? All right? Only the Father knows. And so this stuff helps us to understand patterns, but it does not give us a clue on when everything is going to culminate. We don't know. In fact, we want things to maybe go longer because we want more people to join the kingdom. And we get a chance to keep on inviting others because God is patient. God is patient, and that's a good thing. But in the meantime, kingdoms are going to fall, kingdoms are going to rise, destruction is going to happen, new things are going to happen, people are going to be people, okay? And so that's our little sidebar in Apocalypse. All right, central hope in chapter 7 through 12. Now, he, he pointed out three different options, 
and we're going to talk about that first option because it's the first time we see people really using this and trying to attach it to what's going on to their time. And so I want to talk to you guys a little bit about what happened in this period so that we can get a little clarity on what's going on with the Jews living under the reign of Antiochus for Epiphanes. Didn't know you were going to get some intertestamental history today, did you? All right. So, 612 B.C., the Neo-Babylonian Empire conquers Assyria. Assyria, in 722 B.C., had conquered Israel and taken the northern kingdom away. The southern kingdom of Judah still exists. They're going to go on until they're conquered in 586 B.C. by the Babylonian Empire. So that's under Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar comes. Before that, though, probably the 604-ish around there is actually when Daniel and his friends get taken away. They did get taken before everything else falls. Nebuchadnezzar shows his force by grabbing out the royal bloodline kids. And all these kids are in the line of David that come. So these are all like royal children, like Daniel and his friends. So they're taken. Jerusalem falls, 586 B.C. There's no longer, the temple is destroyed. And Babylon takes all the stuff from it, all the things from the temple. You remember Belshazzar? He throws a wild, drunken party with the gold stuff from the temple that they've stolen. Fast forward a little bit longer to 539 B.C., Persian Empire conquers Babylon. So that's Darius comes in, and the Persian Empire comes. They destroy Babylon. Babylon is a kingdom, is no more. Persia takes over. So what's happened? The pattern is happening, right? Kingdoms are arrogant. They fall. Next one comes. It's arrogant, eventually. And what happens? 330 B.C., Alexander the Great from Macedonia and Greece, he comes and he conquers Persia. Alexander conquers most of the known world. His kingdom goes all the way from Greece to India. And then, you know what happens to Alexander? He gets sick. And he dies. As soon as he finishes conquering India, he catches something, and he doesn't even make it back to Greece before his body is dead. That's how it goes. 323 BC, which is the year that he died, the empire is split into four, also known as the uh, Diadochi, which are his four generals, each take a portion of his kingdom. Yep, they each take, there's four of them, they each take part of the kingdom, and so his kingdom, that's this massive kingdom, immediately gets split into four. 312 to 63 BC, the Seleucid Empire, which is one of the four generals, uh, gets the biggest chunk of land, and it goes all the way from Turkey or so, to India, almost. He gets a big chunk of the land. Uh, and the capital, he puts it back into Babylon, is where he has his capital. And so they have their capital there. Now back and forth, uh, Israel, there's another kingdom called, that's the Ptolemies, which you might remember like Cleopatra. She's from the line of the Ptolemies. And they're in Egypt. And they wrestle back and forth with the Seleucid Empire over the area where Israel is. And so there's wars back and forth a little bit. They're fighting for power, and they go back and forth between their hands. After one of these conquests, where Antiochus IV Epiphanes had gone down to try to knock out the Egyptian group, he comes back, and he's angry, and he, in about 168 B.C., attacks Judea, goes into Jerusalem, he kills a ton of people, he bans practicing Judaism in Jerusalem, and he puts an idol to Zeus, I believe, in the middle of the temple. What do you think about that? 
somebody comes in, kills half of us, and sticks an idol here on the stage. How you feeling? You feeling angry? You feeling hurt? You feeling a little bit hopeless? Maybe. Maybe you are. Maybe you aren't. If your faith is strong, you're not feeling it. Maybe you're saying, I don't know if I can what? I don't know if I can hold on. Am I going to make it through this? Is God going to carry me through this? So what do they read? What do they read? They read the book of Daniel. They read the book of Daniel. And these prophecies of Daniel say, this beastly king, he might have done something terrible, and I've seen these visions, especially in the back half, chapters 10, 11, and 12. This beastly king has come in, and he set this up. Is he going to last? He's not going to last. He's going to be thrown down. So if you know about Hanukkah, Hanukkah is a festival of lights where there's just enough oil for one lamp and one day, and it ends up lasting for eight days. That has to do with the Maccabees kicking this king and his people out of Jerusalem. So that's where the celebration of Hanukkah comes from, is right after this. Okay, so after this group with Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who uses this, every subsequent generation have seen their own time within the book of Daniel. You can look back through history, and you will find people who have written about how Daniel perfectly lines up with the time they're living in every generation. So they're all wrong, but they're all right. Or one of them's right, and everybody else is wrong. Or like it said in the video, they're kind of all right in a way, right? Because what's happened here is Daniel has given us this template that we can use to look at how kingdoms are going to be. And we see this too, right? We look in our history books, and we've seen kings that become monsters, or rulers that become beasts. And they stop paying attention to what the needs are of other people, and they get overthrown. And then something new comes in. And every time that happens, that is playing out this story. Every time, especially that God's people who are trying to be faithful are being oppressed by something, eventually something breaks. Maybe in their lifetime, maybe it takes longer. But eventually, what kingdom has lasted forever? God's. God's kingdom has lasted forever. No other kingdom has lasted forever. Our country is a blip in history so far compared to some of the other kingdoms. Kingdoms like Egypt lasted for thousands and thousands of years. And then, just like everybody else, they fall. The Chinese dynasties lasted and lasted and lasted. And then it went. All these other places, they have maybe long, long histories. Maybe there's a lot of oppression that happens during those times and during many, many centuries or millennia. But what happens? They fall. Who doesn't fall? God. God and God's kingdom will not fall. And God will eventually deal with what is hurting and what is breaking people and what is destroying. And one day our hope is... And hope, remember, is based on a person. So we know God has done this in the past. We know God can do it again. We know God brought his people up out of Egypt in the Exodus. We know God can do this again for us. One day, our hope is that this happens again. And that God sets everything right. And justice and mercy and love flow through this earth in a way like we've never understood. This is our hope. This is what Daniel teaches us.
It's a theme of Daniel. Hope that motivates faithfulness. Hope. God's going to show up so I can be faithful. I can make it. I can hang on. I can hang on a little longer. I'm going to read you guys a couple passages from the New Testament that kind of touch on this. The way that we can hold on. All right? First from Romans chapter 5. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. See, we're waiting for this to happen on a, on a global level, right? We're waiting for this to happen on a cosmic scale where God sets everything right. And as a down payment of that future that God is going to bring about, God has begun making us right. And little pockets of God's redemption and salvation happen within each one of us when we put our knees down at the foot of the cross and we go in the waters of baptism. So, because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us, his death, the way that it has begun to transform this world. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of understand, undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. There's more to come. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. Endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with this love. Because we know that God loves us, because we know how much God loves us, we know God is going to show up, and we're going to enter his glory. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Jump into verse 11. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Wouldn't you rather be a friend of God than an arrogant king? Yeah. Or this passage in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 3, says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. What does that mean? No evil empire can ever take it. Right? God's got it next to him, ready for you. Ready for you. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all the seas. I mean, you won't die? No, everybody dies. Everybody's died. But God's protecting you. God's not going to let the evil one take you. God's not going to let you be taken away. Your inheritance is kept safe, right? What's still coming? Okay. Verse 6, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Are trials coming? Have you gone through trials? Are there going to be more? Yeah. Who's at the end of the line? Yeah, Jesus is. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Through, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. 
What did Nebuchadnezzar do? He saw his head of gold and he built a 90-foot golden statue. That sounds like it's worth a lot, right? Not as much as your faith. Billy, not as much as your faith. Your faith is worth more than that statue of gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Well, that feels like it's written for you, doesn't it? I haven't seen him either. But we can trust. We can trust. God loves us. Salvation is coming. So, we talked about this last week. Which kingdom? The whole question here, too, is which kingdom? Who are you going to follow? What have we learned? Who's lasting forever? God's kingdom. What's not lasting forever? Any other kingdom? Why do you want to put your hope in this one if it's not going to last? That doesn't mean we can't do our best to work on behalf of this one. It's not going to like how we work on its behalf sometimes because we're going to do it on God's terms. It's going to fight us. But what's going to happen? Even still, the choices we make that follow God's kingdom and follow God's way will bless those around us, whether or not they choose God and choose life. And God's kingdom is the one that's going to last, and only God's kingdom. So, like I said in the video, the pattern, human beasts, or human beings become beasts when they don't acknowledge God's kingdom. Do you ever see that? Man, man, that's the truth. That was some Ron coming out of my voice there. Man, that's the truth. There we go. When they don't acknowledge God's kingdom. But the promise, God will one day confront the beast and rescue his world. Until that day comes, and we know it's coming, listen to these words from Jesus as our invitation. Matthew 11, 27, he says, My Father's entrusted everything to me, no one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You hear that? Jesus wants to reveal the Father to you. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I will give you rest. Is that what the world offers? Uh-uh. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. Boy, that's what all those kings and presidents and CEOs and everybody else in authority says, right? I'm gentle and humble. That's what they always say, right? Man, Jesus is different, isn't he? I'm gentle and humble at heart. You will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give you is light. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you. If you haven't come to Jesus, will you today? If you need anything else, you can come forward as we stand and as we sing.